Welcome to the fourth edition of the Fraser Rice Podcast. We're lucky enough today to have Steve Wolomowski. He's a bankruptcy attorney at Chapman & Cutler. Today we're going to be talking a little bit about the bankruptcy world in general and some of the interesting trends that are happening in the space. So Steve, welcome aboard. A pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. So uh, we both went to law school and we both uh, became lawyers at one point. I jettisoned that trail, ultimately, <laughs> thanks to me. Uh, wondering, first of all, how did you get to go to law school? Was that something you wanted to do early on? Yeah, I kind of felt it was something I wanted to do early on. It's a lot, like a lot of people who feel like they write pretty well and are pretty good at running off their mouth. Somehow they think that law school might be a good fit, and I was just one of those. Nice. You know, I had always had an interest in law and politics and that kind of thing. So it, it dovetailed well. Um, and I thought I wanted to be a litigator because I think most people who come into law school think they want to be litigators because that's what they see on TV. Um, and wanted to see what it was like, thought I might want a clerk. And I took a basic bankruptcy course in at, at NYU Law School, not because I was particularly interested in bankruptcy, but because NYU is well known for its very strong offerings in bankruptcy. And I figured, hey, it might be a good idea to, to take a basic course as part of, you know, just having a, a good grounding in, in knowledge of the law generally. Um, and when the professor mentioned that one of the bankruptcy judges downtown was looking for an intern, I thought it might be, you know, during the, during the semester, I thought it might be a good opportunity to see, hey, you know, it's a federal court, you know, maybe I would want to do a clerkship, maybe this is a good way to, for me to see if I in fact want to do a clerkship, see what's going on in, the, in a federal court. So how does how does one get a clerkship like that? How did you know uh, once you got it? How did you get into it? And where did the interest really tip itself off? I don't think I was a typical case. Typically, one might apply the way they apply to any uh, for any federal clerkship. You send in your applications with your letters of recommendation, etc. In this case, because I had started interning in the bankruptcy court. One thing led to another, and they were offering a there was a fellowship that was being sponsored by one of the large firms to work that summer in the bankruptcy court and you'd get paid by the law firm. And so I applied for that, went down. There was this panel of people who interviewed me. Uh, one of them was a bankruptcy judge, Judge uh, Abram at the time, and she uh, asked me about my transcript. And I told her, well, you know, I've got – she asked, what does it look like? And I said, well, you know, it's got, got some A's, some A minuses, a couple B pluses. And I said, I got one C. And she said, well, what course was that that you – what topic was that that you hate so much? that you got to see. And I told her, well, and it was kind of sheepish, but I told her, well, it was bankruptcy, actually. <laughs> so, you know, that didn't start off very auspiciously, but somehow I think that uh, I, I managed, I had done the interning at the bankruptcy court, so I was a known quantity. So that got me that position. And then, um, then shortly thereafter, a position uh, opened up with one of the other judges, Judge Brosman, the one that I ultimately clerked for. And so that's how I did the clerkship. And I kind of got very interested in the bankruptcy side more so than the litigation side. So it's not an exciting story, but I, I think that most people who get into bankruptcy, um, you know, it's not like entertainment law, like you walk into law school and yeah, oh, I want to be an entertainment lawyer. Yeah, well, you and everybody else and all of their grandmothers. But, you know, that's not necessarily what's going to be realistic for people. And and uh, and right. so most people have stories, I think, closer to mine than to, gee, I always wanted to be a bankruptcy lawyer. Well, many times people want to be entertainers as opposed to be entertainment lawyers. <laughs> yes. that, that, that can be a, a, a shocking revelation <laughs> two or three years into the practice. So bankruptcy as a term, a lot of people have this big, broad idea of what bankruptcy is. Uh, and I think many people would understand that uh, people don't want to declare bankruptcy because uh, they've gotten into some sort of financial trouble where they owe more than they're taking in or more than they have. Um, what does bankruptcy seek to achieve and, and what is your role in it? Well, I would divide it into two pieces, um, one of which is what people might consider personal bankruptcy, uh, consumer individuals who, who just get in over their heads, they have too much, they have a medical debt, credit card debt, something happens, they're either irresponsible or circumstances have overtaken them and they just can't handle it anymore and they file for bankruptcy. And that's the kind of bankruptcy that you see in most countries around the world, including in the United States. We have a concept of a discharge, it's to give the, the person a fresh start, it's a concept of people deserve a second chance. But in the United States, we have something that, that we kind of invented and we should be, I think, proud of as a nation, which is the concept of a corporate reorganization, a concept that we're going to preserve value by not only giving individuals second chances, but in some respects, corporations need second chances as well, or it's useful. And this started really, and this is, is a United States 
this is something that really did start in the United States and and has become popularized all or in many many countries around the world, which is the concept of the old concept was okay. You start a business and things go really bad, and you uh, and you have a lot of debt, and you're not paying your creditors. So the creditors can come and sort of take your stuff, take take the business's things away. And in the United States, well, the origin was really the railroad bankruptcies. And if you can imagine, if you think about a railroad, um, yeah, you can go and you could say, okay, the railroad is not paying its its debts. There's been a downturn in the economy in that part of the region where it operates. So I'm going to come and I'm going to lift up the track and I'm going to, as the creditor, and I'm going to sell it for scrap metal. And, you know, that's that's an approach. And that's, in fact, what the law effectively provided for as an option. Yeah, you can go in and you can go and pull up the track and take the scrap metal. But I think that people perceive um, that in an industry like that, that's sort of a poster child for a type of industry where, or maybe it's not the best idea to just rip it into its constituents' parts. Maybe there's you know, a lot of time and effort that have been spent in investment in this particular industry in a way that you're not going to be able to recoup by tearing it apart. And maybe there's value here that we can preserve. And then if we can preserve and maximize that value and keep the company going as a going concern, then we're going to be able to do better by the creditors too, not only by the company that wants the same business or by its shareholders. In fact, maybe sometimes the shareholders won't even end up with a piece of the company, but we will preserve the company and thereby maximize value, which will be good for the individual creditors that will get paid more ultimately, and it'll be better for the economy. And that was something that we came up with as a country here in the 19th century. And with all the criticism that you sometimes hear about Chapter 11, countries, as their economies become more sophisticated, they tend to want to adopt our type of bankruptcy laws because they view it as something that is an integral component of becoming a developed, sophisticated economy. And the best example of that right now is India. India is right now... um, working on a new restructuring law that's modeled much more closely to what we have here in the United States because um, they recognize that their current law, which I kind of love the name of, it's called the Sick Industrial Companies Act. <laughs> could just imagine that they could have used a Madison Avenue truth, consultant. Truth in advertising. <laughs> exactly. Um, but apparently that's slow and it's really not that efficient. It's not made for the modern world. And and they talk about it in terms that I'm just I had seen an article in one of the English language dailies from Mumbai where it talks about you know if if you can have an efficient process then the money you can get back some value from the company the banks and the lenders can lend the money again promote efficient allocation of resources it's the, the there's certainty in the financial markets the bond markets are happy because they know under what circumstances they get repaid and they have sort of a, a roadmap for how they're going to get repaid and in what amounts so a, a a a an insolvency regime that is built around restructuring when you can uh, I think is is really win win, and and that's what we try to accomplish as an as an industry. Well, it sounds like a lot of the the good parts of it stem from the fact that you're trying to help people reorganize and maybe get a more efficient business model in place. Mm-hmm. Uh, the law it sounds like has evolved to the point where instead of ripping up the tracks, uh, you're providing a pathway to a better way of doing things. Yes, I, I think that's right, and I think that I think that's important part of that is the fact that we try to maximize. Value, And I, I haven't been following what the law looks like right now in, let's say, a country like France. But I remember that years ago, we met with some French lawyers who were, who were restructuring, who were insolvency lawyers. And they, and they had a completely different conceptual framework under the law in France, which was you've got to go down the path as a matter of law. Legally, you're required to go down the path that's going to end up preserving the most jobs now rather than what's going to maximize the value of the company. And I think a lot of people recognize that that's ultimately a really – bad way of trying to do business because that company is not really necessarily being fixed in a way that it needs to succeed in the long term if you're only looking at short term you know what's the fewest amount of people i have to i have to lay off so when you're dealing with something like that at the corporate level it can definitely get complicated big uh, obtuse uh, break down for us a little bit who the stakeholders are uh, and i'm sure you've represented different stakeholders Along the process uh, in different forms. Oh, everybody. Uh, I think I've represented everybody. I've been at a couple of firms um, and and debtor side and the creditor side. And and if you think about it, if you're talking about a significant-sized company or even a smaller company that is is going through Chapter 11, think of them outside of Chapter 11. Think of them when just they operate. They've got so many constituents, so many people who have an outcome, a stake in their outcome, meaning the owners – 
the vendors that they do business with, if they've got a bank lender, if they've got you know other kinds of lenders that lend them money, you know that they've if they've issued some kind of note, if they've got they've got employees, they probably got landlords, they've got government that they have to deal with, both in terms of the taxing authorities and in terms of regulatory agencies that they may have to deal with, depending what business they're in. They may have environmental, they may have to deal with licensing agencies if they're in the, you know if they're if they're insurance holding companies. I mean they they've got they've got all kinds of state and local and federal agencies sometimes that they have to deal with. And they've got people that are interested in investing with them, buyers. So so if you come to the bankruptcy side, that hasn't changed in terms of who cares about the process. You've got the existing management that cares about their position. You've got the shareholders, the equity, they're very interested, right? They're they're looking at potentially getting wiped out. You're looking at the creditors who want to get paid, and you're looking at different kinds of creditors. You're looking at the creditors who just want my I would just want my money. But then you're also looking at vendors who maybe owed a few dollars or maybe owed a lot of money, but that's maybe not even their primary concern. They're not necessarily – if they're selling widgets to, to the bankrupt entity, they're not necessarily so interested in, okay, I need to get paid for that every last widget that I sent out last month or sometimes that's important too. But they would like to know that there's going to be a company that they can sell widgets to going forward. So sometimes those interests are very different. And then you've got tort creditors, people who are involuntary creditors effectively. I mean, you've seen a lot of those in the asbestos cases. But even in a normal operating case, somebody's going to slip and fall. They're a creditor, and they didn't ask to be a creditor in the case, but they are, and they've got you know, their own interests. They're, they're more like a creditor that just wants as much money as possible, doesn't really care about the, the long-term uh, implications for the company. Sometimes you've got retirees with pensions. So all those parties need to be represented in the course of a bankruptcy case. And, and, and in a large case, usually they are. Oh, man, that sounds, it sounds <laughs> big and complicated, like I described. Yeah. That it, then you lay out exactly everyone who's interested in a business that falls down. It can include a lot of different entities and people. Yeah, and and depending on what kind of an industry it operates in, you know, then it, some of this subset of the group might not be as active as you as you would otherwise see if if it was a different industry. So there are some industries that are lightly regulated. The government's going to have a you know taxes usually have a priority. You'll you know the, the debtor's plan if it has a plan of organization will propose to stay current on the taxes, and the government will have very very little interest. But in some cases, the government is extremely interested. Um, where there are environmental implications or where it's, you know, where are the implications for antitrust because it's the only other entity that exists besides, you know, the one that there'll only be one left if this one goes under. So the government will have a lot of say in terms of what kind of transactions you can do. If you, you're selling out to your competitor, well, that's going to create antitrust issues. I mean, it really runs the gamut. I would say that having worked at large firms, um, the only lawyers that we didn't interact with probably in, this, in the corporate reorganizational aspect was maybe the trust and estates lawyers because they tend to deal with individuals. Right. Um, but the tax lawyers, the environmental lawyers, corporate obviously for all the transactions that we need to do, litigators because people fight over claims and people fight about fraudulent transfers trying to get money into the estate. Um, yeah, I can't really think of another department with, within a broad, a bigger firm that you might not call upon, whose expertise you might not call upon once in a while if you're a bankruptcy lawyer. So for many people, they look around and they say, geez, you know, the, the, the business and the economy uh, and the economic climate seems to be robust. Are there a lot of companies that are going down uh, and that get in trouble? Uh, I think in our experience, we would say, sure, people get in trouble all the time. It may not be an economic phenomenon or a trend for companies to go down, but certainly mismanagement can cause companies to go down. Some of the industries that I think uh, that have done well lately, it strikes me that you don't hear a lot about bankruptcies. Right. Uh, the tech industry, for instance, and maybe the sort of new age uh, internet companies that seem to have done really well, uh, that seems to me to be a, an area where they've done so well, but the valuations are now starting to get what I would think of as ridiculous uh, and that the terms under which they're funded are starting to get a little ridiculous as it relates to sales. Uh, where What are you seeing in that space? Well, that space is interesting. I mean, you just saw San Jose, California. I don't know if you saw last week, Bloomberg came out with a with a report that San Jose, California ranked number one in terms of highest output per resident. So that's like a, a uh, supposed to be a proxy for, for productivity at, a, at over $100,000 per resident compared to, let's say, New York, which came out at like $70,000 per resident. So, you know, San Jose is, is, is the center of, of tech, uh, of Silicon Valley. And, and therefore, you know, it, it's indicative of where, you know, of where the market is right now. You're seeing, I think, a lot of 
discussion and debate among the financial experts and and quasi-experts about uh, is there a tech bubble? Are we seeing a bubble or is this just some inherent value that's is, – is our, our value – our prices going up, our, 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 our equities in that area going up because um, there is really value there? Um, and that's a good question, not one that I don't I don't pretend to have the the answer to. But I mean, clearly, um, I think that if you do, if we do end up in a in a place where where there is a significant correction in that market, it'll be a little bit different, I think, than the last time. I mean, if you remember the late '90s when you had a real, and there, I think it was unquestionably a bubble. Nobody's going to argue about that. In fact, that's when I think that term was popularized. You had a lot of companies that were really – they were just living in the ether. There was nothing there in terms of real assets. They had this idea. Maybe it was a some kind of an e-business that a thousand other people were doing and the valuations went sky high. But it was really equity money that went in. There wasn't really much in the way of assets. Uh, when they went under, it was really just a matter of giving the keys back to the landlord. There was not really – you know, and firing a bunch of people. There really wasn't – much for the restructuring industry that I work in to work with because there weren't assets, there weren't you know much even in the way of liabilities because so much had come from equity funding. Um, I think this time around, if there is a this time around, uh, I think that you've got much more mature companies uh, that may have real assets that would need to be reorganized. You've got more debt you know, the, the, the ratios of debt versus equity. I mean, you still have a lot of startups that are being funded by VCs, but you've got more debt out there too. I mean, I'm just not picking on anybody, but just using it as an example. I think people know that uh, in the processor world, so in, you know, Intel has been getting a bigger and bigger piece of the shrinking PC market, and and AMD has been uh, suffering because of that. And and you know, their current ratio is probably not where they would want it to be. Um, and you know, they've 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 come up with sort of a, a restructuring plan that the market likes and we'll see but that would be an example of a company that's got real real assets where people are starting to look at it and say hey you know what's the future of sort of the also ran processor manufacturer you know in a market that's shrinking for its product and and you know it's got other valuable assets but that's exactly the point when we restructure we try to restructure around real assets they're real and it's a real business but it's just not enough to support the level of debt that exists now, either because of some bad decisions that were made or because of fundamental changes in the market. And therefore, we've got to get the debt right-sized and rationalized, and then we can have a business going forward. Well, it sounds like that also uh, compared to the late 90s, I mean, th- there are cash flows associated with these businesses. They're, they're generating income uh, at, a, at a better or different rate than maybe they were back then. Uh, at least as a theme. Yes, certainly in some segment of the market, that's true. You've got a mature segment of the tech market. And then, of course, you've got the you still got what they call the unicorns, right, which are these billion dollar non-public companies. And who knows if they're really worth a billion dollars because they're not public, right? So right. and it's not they don't really have much in the way of revenue. And you're just talking about growth, but you're talking about growth rates from from little tiny places that they're starting with. So it's, you know, it's really easy to to double your customer base when you had two customers last week. So, <laughs> That's right. um, you know, so it, it, it'll, it'll be interesting to watch. There are those that think we've got a, a bubble in that area. If there, the only thing I would say is I don't know if it's a bubble, but I think that if it, there is one, then there will be more for us to do on the restructuring side than there than there than there was. You know, well, that's 12, exciting. Fifteen years it's ago, a, it's a you don't like to profit off out of others' misfortune, but it's a need that needs to be fixed. So we talk about handing keys over to landlords just a second ago in the tech world. If you're a New York City resident or live around New York City, you've seen the development, you've seen just the the pace of building that's going on. Uh, where does bankruptcy fit in for the real estate market? Well, real estate presents its own particular challenges. I think you have a lot of things that have been put in place systemically over the last number of years that are meant to discourage bankruptcy and and Chapter 11 restructuring, including what's called bad boy guarantees, where there are a lot of personal guarantees that are imposed on people for filing their entities that they own into bankruptcy. So it, it kind of encourages a process where they'll talk to their secured lender and try to negotiate something before they end up in bankruptcy. And and the other thing is to remember is that why can't you do all this bankruptcy restructuring out of court? What do I need a court for, right? And the answer is the main benefit, the primary benefit, there's a lot of other good bells and whistles, but the primary benefit of Chapter 11 
is the plan process. And the primary benefit of the plan process is the ability of the majority to bind the minority. It kind of solves the free rider problem that says that if you've got nine creditors that want to work with me, but I've got one that's going to hold out, I'm going to have to pay that hold out. And the fact that I'm going to have to pay that hold out in full means that the other nine really are not going to work with me. So there is a voting process that goes into place that says the majority, you, we can buy in within any class of creditors um, and sometimes cross classes, we can bind the minority and therefore we can get something done that makes sense and we could solve the holdout problem. Um, in real estate, you've got a little bit less – I mean it's, you've got something less of that because a lot of times you're, you're dealing – you don't have that much in terms of you know, this big, vast pool of unsecured creditors. You've got you know, the bank or you know, a MES lender. You've got a few lenders that you need to deal with. Sometimes you can cut more of these deals outside of bankruptcy. And clearly, it's been a slow time anyway in the restructuring world for real estate because interest rates have been so low. Right. Well, to borrow a concept from real estate, the bankruptcy process helps you get, in a sense, clear title. Uh, you, you, you put things to bed so that you can move on with the project or otherwise dispose yeah. of the asset accordingly. Yeah. So, you know, so we'll see more of this. I mean, as interest rates start to finally go up and, and get closer, I don't think it's going to be a long time until you see this sort of historical norms, but they at least go up from zero. I mean, it, it's clearly been putting some air into the real estate market because the fact that interest rates have been so low uh, because, you know, if I can I – mean, I'm exaggerating a little bit. But if, if you want to sell me a project, a real estate project on a non-recourse basis and lend me the money to do it, you know, I'll pay whatever you want for that asset, right? right? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so, you know, so, so I think clearly, you know, you're going you're gonna to see, you know, uh, people that I talk to in that industry feel, well, maybe we're not there yet. Maybe we're getting there. But, they, you know, there is a recognition, a growing recognition that this is sort of not – that there's some element of here that that's not fundamental in terms of where the pricing is. Right. So we talked about low interest rates and the possibility that they're going to go up. Uh, another area that's had one of its major data inputs seeing a low trend recently is in energy. Low oil prices, low natural gas prices, all sorts of different inputs that have made it less profitable to run those types of industries. Uh, where does the energy sector fit into your thinking? Well, you're seeing, I mean, that's one area where we actually are seeing, it's, it's not just predictions, it's where we've actually been seeing uh, a, a substantial increase in filing rates. I mean, there was some talk about how, and I think it's partially true, there's some talk about how some of these rigs and things can be, you know, shut down when the price goes below a certain point without, you know, necessarily killing the whole company, you lay off some workers and you, you know, the ease of entry and exit is not as difficult maybe as, as had been thought. But the fact is that you are seeing a, a real increase in the number of energy companies that have been filing and, and you're seeing it in, in both the oil sector where oil prices have gone, uh, you know, less than half of what they were. And you're seeing it in coal a lot where now there's talk about Arch Coal is probably going to have to file, P Peabody, um, Patriot Coal. I mean, you've seen a number of coal companies that have filed. You know, the federal government has been putting enormous pressure on uh, coal companies, some would say, to really put them out of business. And that's worked to some extent. And you've had a lot of, a lot of activity in that area. I mean, that's one area we really see generally where you see a lot of restructuring activity is where you've got a lot of volatility in the underlying price of, a, of an important input into that industry. And if you're dealing with energy, it's hard to imagine that the price of oil can go down by half and that it's not going to produce restructuring. And in fact, it has. And it's, I think it will continue to do it as, you know, assuming that, that prices stay kind of low near where they are. Um, there are companies that have been able to hold out for a while but are just not going to be able to hold out forever. And so I think you're going to see – you have seen – it's one area we've actually seen an increase in activity already. And I think you're going to see it continue, um, you know, barring some big changes in, in, the, in, the, in the prices of energy. Well, talking about government policy as it relates to uh, deciding whether uh, some businesses should continue or not continue, well, we were talking uh, before uh, this podcast about the healthcare sector. And I think we both see in our world that uh, a lot of healthcare valuations seem to be very rich uh, and you know, per bed costs are double what they were seven years ago. And that's reflected in everything from the value of healthcare facilities to cost of healthcare, generally speaking. Um, with the government subsidizing a lot of that through Obamacare, Medicare, Medicaid, 
Uh, and then with low interest rates as it relates for the developers of healthcare facilities being able to borrow to develop these. I mean, do you see that type of uh, double whammy that might hit that sector? Yeah, I mean, that's on our radar too. I mean, there there you've got, I mean, I've, I've been talking to people in that segment, um, and both on the lender side and on the operator side, and there seems to be consensus that prices are crazy. So uh, what does that mean? Well, healthcare is in a is sort of uniquely situated because of what you just mentioned in terms of government involvement. And you kind of live by the government and die by the government. And, and I think that people of my vintage uh, in the restructuring world will remember that in the mid to late 90s, I don't remember the year precisely, but um, the Clinton administration changed the Medicare reimbursement rules. And boom, you had a bunch of, you had dozens and dozens of companies that ran assisted living facilities, nursing home facilities, and other kinds of healthcare facilities go immediately, almost immediately into Chapter 11 proceedings because the rule change was such that you know, their, their, their entire capital structure was built on getting reimbursed at particular rates. And as soon as those rates were cut, it just threw everything out of whack. And you had a whole bunch of those restructurings and ultimately successful reorganizations in the, in the 90s. And, uh, and so when you're talking about now, if anything, a government that is even more involved than it ever was before in healthcare, you, again, you're going to live and die by a stroke of the executive pen sometimes. And, and so that creates, I think, additional risk in terms of, all right, where is this market going? Not only because the fundamentals might suggest that, that a correction is in order, but because there's always that wild card of, okay, you know, especially now as we're seeing sort of the, the healthcare cost curve is not being bent in the right direction necessarily. Uh, well, that increases the temptation for somebody to just, you know, without really giving too much thought to it, you know, knocking down a, a, a reimbursement schedule so that all of a sudden people aren't getting what they think they're going to get and, you know, with the ramifications that, that follow. So, yes, market's been up, I think, in that area, partially because we're seeing an, a, an older demographic. More and more people are going into assisted living facilities, nursing care facilities, everything that runs the gamut in terms of that, that, that piece of the, that part of the market. So that's what's been pushing the market up. But at the same time, you've got, you know, the fact that the fundamentals, I, I think, are, are starting to be stretched to their limits in terms of whether any of this really makes sense. And then the overlay of that risk of the fact that you're not really dealing with the private sector and, their, and the rationality that the private sector imposes, you're dealing with the, with the government, very often the federal government. So, um, so it's, it's, it's a very interesting area as far as we're concerned. Sort of near and dear to my heart uh, is the concept of uh, municipal bankruptcy. Uh, in my world, I uh, have to advise clients as it relates to uh, the quality of their bonds uh, that municipalities issue in order to raise money for certain projects. Uh, and we see a lot of different things where uh, a lot of headlines, whether it's Puerto Rico or Detroit, where uh, the finances of various uh, municipalities or cities, uh, even states to some degree, are called into question and people worry that uh, the creditworthiness of the bonds that they purchase might be under attack. Uh, now, in my experience, that's been very limited uh, and that the number of those cases is not very great and a good credit analysis would probably get you away from those types of bonds anyway. But uh, from a bankruptcy lawyer's perspective, what are you seeing uh, in the municipality space and uh, what conditions uh, make it so rare and will those conditions continue to exist? You're correct. We've had very few municipal bankruptcies historically since, I think, since they became possible in 1937. I read a statistic that some shows them like 600 entities in history in the last 80 years of having filed for, you know, Chapter 9 or its forebears in terms of restructuring. Um, and just, just for background, Chapter 9 is that section of the code that deals with municipal restructuring as opposed to Chapter 11, which deals with sort of private entities. Right. Um, so yes, 600 entities is very little. When you think about tens of thousands of businesses that file each year, even in a slow market like we've had, we've had something like 30 or 40,000 businesses file last year. So you're talking about infinitesimal or very small number of municipal entities having filed over the course of the history of municipal filings. What causes that? I think that there's a lot of, there's that political element to it that makes it really, really difficult to take that step. I mean, it's if you imagine, the, think of what happened in the city of Detroit and how far Detroit had to fall in order for them to finally pull the trigger 
on a reorganization that was really long overdue. I mean, the city had lost a huge percentage of its population. The population that was living there was living under horrible conditions, by and large. But to actually take that step and sort of remove, effectively remove any control and discretion from a democratically elected mayor and deal with the political fallout and have to deal with creditors differently because of, very often because of political considerations of which is going to be a favorite creditor group because are they voters or because they're parties that are going to have sympathy with voters as opposed to maybe investors that seem more removed and, and investors that we, that, you know, that we should be less concerned about, you know, from the perspective of an individual voter. All those considerations, the fact that you need authorization from the state, you can't just not, there are only 12 states that have authorized chapter nine filings by their municipalities, sort of as a general matter. So, you know, there's a lot of talk, for example, now about Illinois, right? Illinois has got terrible amount of pension debt. And that's what's driving, by the way, all this stuff is the pension debts. And, and I hate to be so cynical, but politicians tend to be concerned about the here and now in terms of their budgets. And it's always easy to give away a dollar later than give away a dollar now. So, I mean, you've seen a lot of pension liabilities that are out of control. And Illinois is a great example of that. But Illinois does not have an authorizing statute that would allow its municipalities to file for Chapter 9. So if, for example, and it's not only municipalities, it's municipal entities, municipal corporations. So Mm -hmm. if the Chicago Board of Ed, for example, which has tremendous liabilities, wanted to file, well, right now it couldn't. And there's legislation pending in Springfield that would make that happen. But it's like a lot of other things today in Illinois. You've got a complete deadlock between the governor and the legislature, and it's not clear that you know, that's not clear that anything's going to happen uh, productively. Well, so it seems like there isn't a real clear path uh, in that case. Right. And I I talk to clients all the time who say, I don't want to be involved in an Orange County. That happened, right. that happened a long time ago, and people right. still remember it. So the idea that uh, the damage from that type of proceeding, you know, politically or otherwise, uh, it, it can be long-lasting and, and, in a sense, total. Right. And look, I mean, let's look at Detroit. I mean, Detroit is the biggest city that I've ever filed. So it's really something that people are really looking at. And, and now it's been a year, right? It emerged, merged from its Chapter 9 proceeding, the city, approximately a year ago, coming up on a year. But where are we with Detroit? Um, a lot of analysis being done right now. So, you know, if you just Google it, you'll see tons of analysis. Okay, where is the city right now? But the bottom line is, you know, the street lights are put, are being put back in, in place and lighting up streets that they haven't lit up in many, many years. The attrition in terms of population seems to have bottomed out. Um, there are a lot of good things going on in Detroit, but they're still facing a lot of issues looking forward because precisely because politically it's difficult to really um, compromise and reduce your debt burden the way you might want to. So they're looking at a huge pension obligation that's staring them in the face, you know, coming in 2024 that they would have to pay or refinance or whatever it is. And returns on their investments is not necessarily, you know, people are looking at it with concern right now. So uh, Detroit, I think, shows both the good and bad elements of a Chapter 9 restructuring, which is it's really hard to, A, be fair and do what needs to be done to actually get a city, you know, on very, very firm footing. But on the other hand, sometimes, you know, in the case of Detroit, the city was in such bad shape that sort of anything where it was going to get a relook and people were going to pay attention to it and there was going to be reinvestment, sort of anything was an improvement. And you know, there has been some improvement, but there's real questions for the longer term. Well, having just been there and hearing some stories about Dan Gilbert getting in and uh, helping to reinvest in the community, they're, they're nice green shoots there. Right. Uh, but is that going to be in place fast enough to replace the structure that was that Detroit was operating under? So in a sense, it seems like Chapter 9 has been a good, useful tool in terms of uh, getting Detroit to another level or another place where it can deal with its debits. But is the economy that's underpinning it going to grow fast enough in order to make that business model work again? I mean, the income tax base is still very concerning there. It's very, it's low. And how are you getting at people, you know, you need a lot of people to move in. Why? And taxes are fairly high still. It's not like they've given, you know, they've, they've created these special zones where maybe you're going to get special particular benefits for people who come in. But in terms of the income tax burden, that's high. You know, you want to increase your tax base. There's some talk now about trying to impose some kind of a commuter tax in order to lift up the income tax receipts. But people who come in to work in Detroit, um, that might be really counterproductive because unlike, let's say, Manhattan, New York City, which kind of lived with a commuter tax um, uh, for a long time, 
Michigan, Michigan, Michigan has got a lot of other options in terms of suburban Detroit where businesses will and have located. So, you know, you've got Southfield, for example. You've got a lot of other – Bloomfield Hills. Yeah, exactly. Plenty of options. Exactly. So if you impose a commuter tax, I'm not sure that that's the answer. I think that may serve to wither your tax base even further. So the the real issue I see in Detroit is, um, you know, how do you get back to that – You've you've got to rationalize your entire city government to reflect the city that you have now, not the city that you used to have because no matter how well-intentioned you are and no matter what you've done to try to improve things now, you're not getting back that manufacturing mecca of the 50s. It's not coming back. So what are you doing to recognize the fact that your tax receipts may never be what they were? Oh, and just on pure population basis, yeah. so they've got six hundred thousand people, and everything was built to service two million. Right, uh, and they're not going to get to two million very quickly, yeah, including the sheer real estate. It's a huge city geographically. Right. Uh, one of my pet theories is that maybe they should divide it into four parts and and pick one of them <laughs> uh, for redevelopment and uh, and then uh, figure out another use for the other Apple three orchards, quadrants. I don't You're know. right. No, exactly. <laughs> Green energy. Um, so I read something in Dealbook recently. Uh, the the head line was essentially is chapter 11 dead and yeah, you know that. we've we've talked a little bit about uh, many reasons why it it isn't dead um but it seems to make the case that uh, reorganization is more difficult than it has been in the past and there's just a lot of uh, expense associated with it and uh you know why bother uh, what do you think about that it's, it's in deal book so it's effectively mostly it's it's read on the internet and it's so it's to some extent that headline was what they call clickbait i think right um I, I think that, yes, bankruptcy is a process that has been evolving and changing over time. And one thing that people have recognized or the industry has recognized is that maybe it's a good idea. You know, there's a stigma associated with bankruptcy, especially if you're in a type of a business that has a lot of interaction with the public, with the general public. You don't want to be in bankruptcy that long. And maybe one way to to maximize the value, as we talked about at the beginning of our conversation is maybe let's try to sell this company not in pieces but as a going concern and then we can fight up fight over the money that comes in. Um, so what we call the 363, which is a section of the bankruptcy code, the 363 sale process, yes, that has become much more popular and that has um, shortened the length of, of, of restructuring proceedings so you can get a sale done fairly quickly, hopefully save those jobs and save a good business and then just, like I said, fight over you know who gets the value. Um, so that certainly has been over time has been – has resulted in shorter uh, Chapter 11 proceedings and that's probably not a bad thing. Um, you know, there is a risk of sometimes not tying up all the loose ends but Overall, I mean, it's what the market has chosen, and it's not necessarily bad. So, you know, to the extent he's making that point, yeah, he he's correct about that. But in terms of some kind of a, oh well, look how how slow things have been in the last number of years, and this is some kind of indi- indicator about how it's never coming back. Um, I think that it's really hard to make that kind of an argument because you're not control. How do you control for the variables, which are huge variables, which which is that. Money's been free for quite a while now. I mean, you've been looking at zero percent interest rate. You've had a uh, declining interest rate environment forever, and now, and and uh, and therefore, you know, it, it's really easy to to sweep a lot of problems under the rug and solve a lot of problems when you can, you know, when you can borrow and refinance in ways that you might not be able to do. And if you can pay current pay interest, for example, uh, your lender would be happy to take current pay interest rather than have to deal with. A problem, and so therefore, it's a good way of kicking a can down the road. I can make, you know, once I'm non-performing, then they know I have to restructure if I can't pay anything. But if I can pay something, if I can pay at least the interest, then yeah, I'll amend what they call amend and pretend, and I'll, I'll, you know, I will deal with it another day. So I think that you've got the interest rate environment, you've got default rates that are really low from an historical basis. And to be able to look at that and then say, okay, this means that this is never coming back. He may be right, I guess. Could be. I don't think so, but it's – I don't think so. Either. I don't think so. But but how could you tell? I mean it's just with, 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 with this not normalized interest rate environment and not normal economic environment where you've had kind of this kind of tepid growth. Tepid growth, this is a point I'd like – an interesting point that I've – which is that Tepid growth is not exactly a, a good formula for uh, producing a lot of restructuring work because you know the, the two alternatives are much are much better in terms of 
the restructuring environment. If you think about uh, a weak market, if you think about a declining market, if you think about a recession, well, then you could understand how uh, how that would lead to restructuring work, right? So because you've got, you've got, let's say, housing market goes down, and all of a sudden the guy who was selling appliances and had this chain of retail stores that was selling appliances, people aren't buying new washing machines to install in the new houses anymore. Well, that would be a problem we need to restructure. On the other hand, if you've got a lot of growth, well, that's really also very good for restructuring because if a lot of new businesses are being started, then uh, just the, sort of the way the world works, a certain percentage of businesses fail and a certain percentage of expansion projects fail. And so that produces a lot of restructuring work. And it's, it's sort of this, this area where, where you've got sort of bumping along type of tepid growth that, that really is not that great for restructuring. And that's exactly what we've seen. And then you couple that with the fact that the last sort of real, real um, uptick, I would, let's call it, in restructuring work, which was the Great Recession and the crash that we saw in 2008, 2009, was really not typical or normal in the sense that normally if you have a, a sort of a regular downturn, one that's not as extreme, um, you've got a lot of companies that need to be restruct- restructured. And at that time, there was so much fear in the market that a lot of companies that could have been restructured instead ended up liquidating. And the result was therefore that you didn't have as many restructurings and you didn't have as many restructurings with long tails as you might normally see. So we normally see, okay, you have got a downturn and then the tail on that in terms of restructuring work can last a long time and can take you almost until the next downturn. And the Great Recession was so severe that it really spooked a lot of people out of the market and really caused a lot of fundamental changes for quite a while in terms of people willing to really put their toe and dip their toe into the restructuring lending in terms of lending to weak entities. So it, it, it caused sort of an unnatural, I think, abrupt ending to what was a busy period in restructuring for a relatively short amount of time. So contrast that to the late 90s, which uh, was in a sense of, you know, the bursting of a bubble, but at the same time, uh, not as, in a sense, not as much of a heart attack for the economy as uh, sort of that 2007-2008 period. Uh, in that area where the restructuring is a little more, I guess, normalized yes. in terms of the volume? Yes, yes. It's clearly the case. I mean, I think you saw, I mean, with, for example, the 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 tech bubble. I mean, you saw a lot of fundamental value that was still being created, even in the context of a lot of overvaluation. So you had that still supporting the economy, even through the downturn. And you had, um, it was actually a a more favorable environment for retail restructurings as well. I mean, that's one thing. Uh, It was easier for retailers to restructure in those days. um, Because in 2000, one of the changes that have, was made when, it, when the bankruptcy laws were changed in 2005, and, and this I would say, so retail is probably the only one that was really affected, you know, in a deal book article sort of fundamental way. It's become more difficult for retailers to restructure. I mean, Alex Partners just came out with, which is, a, which is an advisory firm, came out with a report today which says, and they looked apparently at, at a universe of corporations that filed for bankruptcy with uh, more than $50 million in liability over a period of time. Since 2005, changes to the bankruptcy code, uh, 55% of all retailers filing for Chapter 11 ended up in liquidation versus 5% for other businesses. Oh, wow. So I mean, one of the things that you used to see that you don't see anymore uh, because of the changes to the law is, well, now the law is – there was some concern beforehand – that landlords um, were getting hung out to dry. And, and why was this the case? Because if I was a retailer and I had, let's say, 200 stores, and now I face financial distress, my sales have gone down and I can't support my debt burden, um, I want to go into bankruptcy and I want to see, well, now I've got this restructuring plan where I'm going to build five new stores and I'm going to cut down 35 of my weakest performing stores and I'm going to have – you know, instead of 200 stores, I'm going to have 170 stores. And is that business plan going to work? Well, let's try it. And we go through, let's say, and, and, and the retail tends to be very seasonal. So I have to wait and go through a Christmas season. Let's see what happens. Well, maybe that didn't work out so well. So I'm going to hold on to my leases. I'm going to keep paying them, but I'm going to cut, you know, okay, plan B. Plan B is let's cut another 40 stores down. And then Maybe if you were lucky, if it didn't end up in a real liquidation, you ended up with a core group of, let's say, 100 stores that was able to be the basis of your restructuring, and now you've reorganized and you're going forward. Um, 
the downside to that was from the landlord perspective, which is, you know, I've got this shopping mall or, and, and I've got this tenant that's sort of hanging around in Chapter 11 and there's a lot of uncertainty. And my other tenants that I'm trying to trying to rent spaces to don't know where my anchor tenant is going to be in two years. So we got to do this more quickly. And in fact, and that's a legitimate concern, there's no question about it, but in fact, when they changed the bankruptcy code in 2005, that's the really one of the key changes that they made. Everybody's familiar with the individual bankruptcy changes where they made it harder to be an individual consumer um, who who has a lot of credit card debt and sort of wants to make it go away. They made it tougher for them, but people are less aware of the changes that were made in terms of corporate bankruptcies. And probably the biggest one relates to this concept of commercial real estate, which is that debtors get now very little time to decide whether or not they're going to assume the lease, a particular lease. Okay, I'm taking on responsibility for this. Uh, hell or high water effectively, or am I going to jettison this lease because I don't want it? So it's harder. So if you've got, you got to make that decision now, you don't have the luxury of, oh, let's see if the business plan works through Christmas anymore. So you're seeing a lot more in terms of liquidation rather than reorganization, I think particularly in retail. And if there was an industry in which the deal book article I think was most correct about, I, I would say that that's uh, retail in the sense that there have been some fundamental changes that you know, probably should be addressed uh, if there were going to be some further changes to the bankruptcy code um, to make it a little bit easier, at least for the retailers to restructure, maybe try to draw some kind of a a balance. Um, But um, I think that there hasn't been a lot otherwise that has occurred to make companies, you know, fundamentally unreorganizable. I don't think that's a word, but... (laughs) Close enough. (laughs) We all get it. A quick question to get back to the uh, to the individual or the consumer. Yeah. Uh, one of my thoughts is that the change in law that made student loan debt not dischargeable through bankruptcy, mm-hmm. I think that in many ways that's very harsh. And uh, I think we're starting to see economic conditions where people uh, don't have as many options uh, because of the student loan debt. And if one of those options used to be bankruptcy but isn't now – uh, that that creates a real problem and that the economy is going to be uh, dealing with a workforce that's going to be burdened by debt, especially in the student loan area to the point where uh, if they made mistakes in the choices they made as it relates to uh, the type of education they took on and that doesn't yield a job uh, or any sort of income – but they're not able to reorganize their own effects to be able to try to make a new start of it. Uh, is that an area of reform that makes sense or am I misreading that? No, I don't think you're misreading it in the sense that there's a real problem. On the other hand, of course, the the issue, which – and there are some circumstances under which student debt can be um, discharged if there's – it's difficult but, you know, undue burden basically. You know, I thought I was going to, um, you know, be the next – uh, Perry Mason, and then you know, and then I, you know, somebody lost their voice box or something. You know, the, it, fundamental changes that that can get you out of student loan debt. But in general, you're right. Uh, but the the countervailing problem, of course, is that um, that who's going to lend to a student who can go out the next day? Student by de- you know by the nature of that demographic doesn't really have much, if anything, in the way of assets. So they don't have, oh yeah, they don't have a credit record and they don't have assets. So Who's going to lend to them if the debt is dischargeable? So that's the that's the countervailing problem. And I think that the answer, and maybe I'm veering into politics, but I think the answer is to sort of change the paradigm in terms of how we make student stu- be you know getting an education possible or affordable here in the United States. And I think that over the years, what we've done is we've allowed tuitions to go as high as we want them to go, as high as they can go, right? Because we're going to don't worry, we're going to lend you the money to go to school. So don't worry about it. You can go wherever you like because we're going to lend you as much money as you need. Well, you are, but then I got all this debt, right? Whereas if we try to focus more, okay, what kind of things can we be doing to bring more responsibility to the people making decisions, bring more responsibility, impose more responsibility on the universities so that college becomes more affordable proposition in the first place in terms of the cost rather than, okay, it's going to be really expensive, but don't worry, we're going to lend you the money. That, you know, that's like, okay, you know, supporting a bad drug habit. I'll lend you as much money as you need. Don't worry about it or you'll come back, um, right? I mean, it's not a good idea. I think it'd be a much better idea if we can get a handle around education costs because we know that those have been greatly exceeding the cost of inflation. And I don't know why. Do you know why? I don't know why they should be. I mean, I know you have a lot more administration in universities nowadays, but you would think that with all the technology that have made things so much more productive in the private sector and other areas where, you know, you can now 
do things that you don't need as many people to do as much, you would think that universities should be able to do a lot of the same things with technology, but instead it's created the situation, the fact that people can borrow as much as they want in order to go to college has meant that there hasn't been as much pressure on universities to keep their tuitions in check. And so to me, there needs to be a shift in the paradigm of what we think about in terms of how college is going to be affordable. Can the bankruptcy code be part of that? I I think so. I think that there is a place for the bankruptcy code in that discussion. But again, you've really got to balance. You want those private sector lenders to lend. And if it's going to be the federal government lending, you've got the same issues because, you know, otherwise you're just creating – if you're just going to let everybody discharge, then you're going to keep blowing whatever budget you've established for for those loans. So the federalizing that the loans doesn't make the problem easier Yeah, Mark Cuban says that college education seems to be the next bubble in his mind. And uh, in a sense, I agree with it. Uh, The part that I take from the conversation we just – you just had there uh, that I think is interesting is you know I think we have to reevaluate what the college education is for. I mean, many people used to think that high school education was enough to be competitive in the economy, and that that just isn't the case anymore. And and maybe the metrics uh, for lending to graduate school are more applicable in the current environment. Yeah. But but the college lending standards. The kids are too young. The costs are too high. The risks are too great. And maybe that's just, just got to be a different way to go about it. Yeah, I mean, well, if you think about it, if we live in a we live in a in a society in which there's this concept because of technology that information yearns to be free or should be free, right, or is free. If information is so cheap, how does that square with college, which is you get a lot out of college, but fundamentally you're getting information, right? And and how is that getting more expensive? And why should that be? And how is that going to last? How is that going to survive an information age in which information is getting cheaper and cheaper, not more expensive and more expensive? Well, I guess, too, the it used to be, and I'm sure my parents and others would say, geez, you know, you, we, we sent you to college to learn how to think uh, and to develop judgment. And depending on who you talk to and, you know, the type of employees you get and where the youth is today and so on, that that's is not necessarily given the judgment and thinking and the rational process are being conveyed in college. That in a sense, it really is just information. Yeah. Uh, and is that is that getting too expensive? Right. Well, Steve, it's been terrific to have you on here. I have learned more about bankruptcy in an hour than I think I have uh, ever had, and I took a class in law school like you did. (laughs) I want to thank you for being on. It's my pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a a fun discussion. Terrific. Uh, And ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for being part of the podcast. Uh, The Fraser Rice Podcast will be back uh, within a few months with uh, another great guest. In the meantime, have a great day.